Well, it's good to live in the 21st century, isn't it? I mean, think about how far we've come. Like, can you believe there was a time when scientists and everybody else thought the world was flat and that the earth was the center of the universe? Or that there was once an entire branch of science that was dedicated to turning lead into gold? Or for me personally, I'm especially thankful for, for indoor plumbing. When I was a pastor in Indiana, I knew people who aren't much older than I am who grew up without indoor plumbing. Which I don't even want to get up in the middle of the night to walk 10 feet to my bathroom, let alone get up, walk out to the back of my yard to an outhouse. Right, we've come a long way, and, and yet it's, it even gets worse in the ways that we've come so far. Now, my parents, they grew up in a world that was, that was segregated. That depending on your skin color, you couldn't eat at certain restaurants, drink at certain water fountains, or sleep in certain hotels. That my grandparents' grandparents knew the world of, of slavery. And if my skin color was different, most likely my grandparents' grandparents would have been slaves. That we've come a long way. That we look at the things that happened 50 or 150 years ago and we're sort of embarrassed, right? That we're proud we're no longer dumb enough to think that lead can become gold. Or that we should enslave people based on their skin color. And this thinking, right, that we, that we live, or we're better off now in the 21st century than when we were 50, 100 years ago, it can, it can lead you to one of two places. Right? One, it can, it can lead you to think that you're superior to your ancestors, that you're immune to the embarrassing mistakes that, that they made, that in some sense we, we've arrived, we've advanced, and surely we still have some problems, but for the most part we're so much better off than they were. That's one way you can, you can take it. Or there's another way, which is, we know most likely our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids are going to be embarrassed about things we believed and said. That we're actually not superior to our ancestors. That we, like our ancestors, are blind to the destruction and the pain we're capable of. Blind to our capacity for injustice, for sin, for racism. Right, those are the two places you can go. Either pride in our advancement or the reality check of, I think we may still be in the same place. And probably most of us, we'd want to be in Camp 1, right? I mean, indoor plumbing is really great. Right, we've Surely we're better off. We're, we've advanced. And yet if you, you heard what the Apostle Paul just said in, in 1 Corinthians 2, I think we have to land in option 2. That because of what Paul says... We can't know God without God. That the only way to know God is, is, is through God. That for all the progress we've made, for the, the, all we've done in the last 150 years, you and I will never know God without God. And without God, we'll never know a wisdom that runs deeper than our cultural fads. We'll never be able to get past whatever cultural thinking of the moment exists. We'll be stuck with a wisdom that can't get past it. That we'll be unable to see our greatest sins. And sure enough, a hundred years from now, my great-grandkids will look back and be embarrassed about me. That I, I can't know God without God. And I realize that cuts against everything we say about human wisdom, which is self-sufficient, and we're so smart, we're so brilliant. And yet Paul's argument, it's pretty clear here in 1 Corinthians 2. It's a little, it's a little thick in parts. But he starts, right, by, by saying why you can't know God without God, why you need God to know God, and thirdly and finally, why you can or how you can know God. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, kind of under those three headings, starting with why you can't know God without God. 
In verses 6 through 10, Paul unpacks why it's impossible to know God without God. And, and let me just summarize his, his argument in, in two points. That one, you and I, we have to be shown God's wisdom. And that second, our wisdom, it has a shelf life. It dies. So first, you and I, we have to be shown God's wisdom. And that's where Paul starts in, in verse 6 when he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom... Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He's saying we do impart wisdom. And you have to remember back to where we were last week in 1 Corinthians 1. Where Paul described the, the cross and what he described it as was foolishness and a stumbling block. It was hard to believe in if you, if you weren't a Christian. It was just difficult. It was, it was offensive in, in some ways. And yet here Paul wants to say the cross though it's not really foolish. It's not really a stumbling block. Really it's, it's wisdom. We do impart wisdom. This is the wisest thing you'll ever encounter. It's just not the sort of wisdom you and I tend to look for. And that's why we can't miss the irony of, of what Paul is doing in verse 6 when he calls the Corinthians mature. He says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. And the, the, that word mature was a word they loved to use of themselves. They thought that they were mature. And the, the word literally means complete or whole or, or arrived Right? And they thought that they were complete, that they, they had arrived, they were, they were nearly perfect. And so Paul uses this word with a sense of irony because he's about to, in 1 Corinthians 3, where we'll be next week, he's about to lay into them for their immaturity, for the fact that they weren't mature, they were actually quite immature. And so there's some irony there, but there's also a sense in which he's serious. They are mature. That if, if you're a Christian, you have access to a wisdom that can only be given to you, that's unique. And that's Paul's point, that these Corinthians, even though they're acting immature, they've received a wisdom that the most brilliant of minds could never get to, could never find on their own. Right, that's where he goes in verse 7, that, that this wisdom, it's, it was secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The secret and hidden wisdom of God, which he's now revealed to his church, to Christians and they, this is a wisdom that no one could see, no one could understand until God showed it, God revealed it to us, right? You can't, you can't know God unless God shows you himself. And that's the point of the, Paul, the poem that Paul quotes in, in verse 9. That he, he pulls a couple of verses from Isaiah, pulls them together, right? And I, anytime I've heard this verse, it's almost always used at a funeral to talk about heaven, what God prepared, no one can imagine. And yet Paul's not... Not using this poem to refer to, to what comes after death. He's using it to refer back to the cross. That no one could have seen God's salvation coming through that act. Right? That what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. No one would have ever seen that coming. No one could have ever imagined God giving himself away in that shape or that form. None of us could have seen coming. It's a wisdom that, that none of you, that none of us could have without God. That's why he says in verse 10, these things have been revealed to us by the Spirit. We've had, we have to be shown God's wisdom. We have to be shown who God is because we can't know God without God. But God has to show you his wisdom. And I realize, even as I was studying this and even as I'm preaching this, it makes me a little bit nervous. Right? The Christians have this secret wisdom that God only reveals to them that no one else knows, right? It's the sort of thing you would expect a cult leader who is asking for money to say, right? It just sounds a little bit uncomfortable. And yet, all right, Paul has just spent all of 1 Corinthians 1 talking about what this secret hidden wisdom was. 
It wasn't some special knowledge hidden from everyone else. It was the cross, a public display. And yet the reality is you're going to look at the cross and you're going to see one of two things. Either a criminal crucified waste of a life or the very God of the power to save. And Paul's saying you'll never get to that view. You'll never see the cross for what it is unless God shows you, reveals it to you. You'll never see in the cross the power to totally change your life. That you'll never see in, in the cross the power to forgive anyone of anything, both you and those who sin against you. That you'll never see the cross for how deeply God loves you. For the cost he gave that you might have life. You'll never be able to see that unless God shows it and reveals it to you. God has to show us that wisdom because our wisdom, the wisdom you and I come up with, human wisdom, it has, it, it'll die away. It has a shelf life. All right, Paul makes that point at the end of verse 6 when he talks about, we do impart wisdom, we do have wisdom, but it's of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So that raises the question, okay, who are the rulers of this age? Who's Paul talking about? And, and in one sense, it's, it's obvious. It's definitely the people who, Paul, who, who crucified Jesus. We, we read that in verse in verse 9, it's the people who crucified Jesus, but it's more than that. It's the thought leaders of the day. It's the people who were influential, the people who the Corinthians were looking at and saying, that's who we want to be like. And Paul's saying, those are the very people who crucified Jesus. It's the people the Corinthians thought were brilliant, that they were trading in the wisdom of the cross for the rhetoric of their day. And Paul's point here should be an easy one for us to take in, right? Because we can look 50 years ago at the views and, and thoughts of people then, right, and, and think, oh, I'm glad I don't think that what they think, right? Their, their views of segregation, their views of women, right? We're just glad we're not there anymore. That it's easy to see how quickly wisdom and the thinking of the day dies once you've lived a little bit of life. And this thought that, that our wisdom will die with us, that it has a shelf life, it has, it has two important applications for us, things that you and I, we, we can't or at least we shouldn't, miss that all of us each one of us we can easily give up the cross for for a dying wisdom give up the timeless wisdom of God for something that will pass away soon enough that's exactly what these Corinthians Christians are doing here these Christians who lived in the ancient city of Corinth they were giving up the wisdom of the cross for the the cultural fads of their day right and we can look 150 years ago see Christians who who in 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 in, in encouraged, there it is, encouraged the, the slave trade. We would look 50 years ago, Christians who opposed uh, Martin Luther King and his efforts to end segregation. Right, we can look at today, Christians who are abandoning the gospel because our culture views of sex. We no longer think that, that the Bible can speak to those issues. Right, no matter what age you live in, there are cultural issues that make Christianity look foolish. And what Paul's trying to warn the Corinthians of here, and we need to hear this warning too, is that if we're not careful, those cultural fads will lead, lead us to leave behind the cross, the timeless wisdom of God, the gospel itself. And granted, that, that doesn't mean, it, I'm talking about anti-intellectualism here, like that human wisdom has nothing to say. I'm not suggesting we just grab our Bibles, go find a hole somewhere, and just live there until Jesus comes back. I'm not saying that. Human wisdom has a lot to offer, right? Indoor plumbing, perfect example. It has a lot, but it doesn't have everything. And in many times, it's counterproductive. And so what that means, I think the point for us to hear is that if you're a Christian, you probably shouldn't have a high view of your wisdom capabilities. You know you're, you can't know God without God. You, you know you're prone to make mistakes. You're, you can look at past Christians and see the mistakes they made and know 
we're not unique. We're not special. We're prone to the same sins. Right, and that should make we Christians, if you're a Christian, it should make you a listener, a learner. That above all, you listen and learn from the Spirit. That's what Paul's driving at here. Because you know that what's compelling now in our day, in our age, won't keep, be compelling 50 years from now. Right, and so we listen to the Scriptures, not to the cultural fads of our day. We listen to the Scriptures because we know our wisdom will die with us. But the scriptures have stood a long, a long time. After we listen to the voices of, of the oppressed who still insist we have ways to go in justice and, and race. Right? We're listeners, we're learners, we're humble because we know our wisdom is limited. The, above all, we know what's compelling now in this moment soon will not be. Right, and that's, the, 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 listen, there's many reasons why probably you, if, if you're a Christian, will struggle with your faith, or if you're not a Christian, maybe wouldn't want to be a Christian. Right, that we live in a culture that makes some compelling cases to us of why Christianity or the Bible in places seems to be irrelevant or repressive. Whether it's Christianity's views of, of human sexuality or Christianity's views of, of hell, there's lots of reasons to look at the Bible and say, that just doesn't jive with the world in which I live. It's just too difficult to take in. That I can't credibly believe in Christianity if those things are true. And, and I just want to for a moment push back on that thinking. Not that as a Christian I don't have hard questions that I need to answer. right? Not that there aren't serious objections we as Christians need to work through to humbly answer people. But let's not forget that whatever your objection to Christianity is, it most likely won't be relevant 50 years from now. It most likely won't be important. And for example, if, if you were a Christian... 50 years ago, you might very well have rejected Christianity because of what Martin Luther King Jr. was saying. And if you were a white American, you would have been embarrassed by Christianity's view of racial justice and segregation and probably could not have become a Christian. I know stories of people like that. And their testimonies, their reason to reject Christianity now sound embarrassing to our ears. And all I want to suggest is that maybe the reasons that you're rejecting Christianity 50 years from now will have the same ring that those objections have to us today. That whatever the cultural fad is that's pushing you against Christianity, or if you're a Christian, whatever maybe makes you disbelieve the Bible, or makes you struggle about the Bible, just, just take the long view. That whatever's compelling now, today, soon won't be. And I know that's not a total answer to, to objections or to frustrations or to questions we have to work through as a church, but it does mean that, that at least we don't trust, or at least have a great deal of trust in our own wisdom. Because it's soon going to die. Right? The question isn't, or should never be to any of us, does Christianity offend me? It, it's, it's kind of supposed to. And that's whole, that, Paul goes at length in 1 Corinthians 1 to say, listen, the cross is offensive to everybody. That's not the question, does Christianity offend you? It, it, it will. The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did, I think he has the right to offend me. I think he has a wisdom that I don't have access to. And he's going to see things I can't see. It's a wisdom I have to be shown. It's, it's why you can't know God without God. He has to show you that wisdom. And Paul's trying to make that clear in verses 6 through 10. But second, he moves on to why you need God to know God. In verses 10 through 12, I have to confess, they're a little thick. But I want to read them at length. Because the argument's important. I don't want us to miss it. But here's what Paul says about why you need God to know God. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. All right, so what is Paul saying? If those verses are confusing, you're not sure, it's okay. I wasn't either when I first sat down to study this this week. But, but here's, what, here's Paul's basic argument. That knowing God is not like knowing anything else. Right? If I want to know a rock, I can just pick it up, I can study it, look at it, and the rock's not even going to care. It's not even going to know I'm studying it. Right? But if I want to know an ostrich, I'm going to have to chase it down, right? coax it into being my friend so I can learn about it or know it. Right? Or take, take a human being. It's even more complicated, right? That if I'm going to know a human being, they actually have to let me in, open up, reveal themselves to me. That the more complex the being is, the more difficult it is to, to know what that being is. I think of your best friend or your, your spouse. That if you're anything like me, that there have been moments when, when I was sure and I knew exactly what they were thinking, and in reac- actuality, I had no idea. Right, so my fifth anniversary, I made a, a plan to, to take my wife out and, and had, a great, had a great idea. Um, at least I thought it was. And, and so we went to Milwaukee, and we were living in Chicago at the time, booked a hotel, um, got to, got, got, found a good restaurant to eat at. And the surprise part of the night was that one of our favorite bands was playing that night. And so I got tickets and didn't tell her about it. All right, so we go, we have a great dinner, and I just, I just start walking around Milwaukee, you know, and we, we love to go on walks and talk together. So we were walking around Milwaukee, and the whole surprise was I was just going to walk up to the theater, bust out the tickets, and surprise, and get to see all the joy, right? And so I'm, we're walking through Milwaukee, I'm thinking, she's just thinking, what are we doing? This is great, it's a great night. And then we walk up to the, the concert, and she's surprised, she's thrilled, she's filled with joy, it's great. It's a great moment, and I think I've hit the ball out of the park. And in reality, I actually had no idea what she was thinking, because she had found the tickets like two months ago. So after dinner, as we're walking around Milwaukee, she's just thinking, how long are we going to walk? Can we just go to the concert already? I, I know what's coming. You do, like, right? And so I think I know, but she doesn't. She doesn't let me in. So I just walk like a moron around Milwaukee for, for several minutes, um, trying to, to surprise her, which didn't work, right? And so if you're married, you have a good friend, you know. If, if, that other, if they don't let you in, you don't know what they're thinking. You don't know what's going on in their mind. It's impossible. And that's Paul's point with God. If it's hard for me to really know what's going on with my wife from time to time, who I live with, how much infinitely harder is it for me to know God, actually know what God's like, what he thinks? That if I'm dependent on another human being to let me in, how much more dependent am I on God? And so how can you and I know God? And that's the question. And Paul's answer is, it's simple. It's the Holy Spirit. That's it. And that's why Paul is reminding these Corinthians that his teaching is not rooted in his own wisdom, in his own brilliance. Right? Verse 13, that, that, that we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. Right? This isn't my best thinking. I didn't go to theology school, figure all this out, and now I'm teaching it to you. No, it's not by human wisdom. It's interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And just remember what the spiritual truths are. It's 1 Corinthians 1. It's the message of the cross. That Paul came, not with this brilliant wisdom, but with the message of a crucified Messiah. And that message is the wisdom of God that you and I need to be able to know God. And the problem then for, for us and for the Corinthians in that day is it's, it's easy just to move on from the cross. Right? say, so, well, that's, that's great, but now let's get to the really meaty, the really great stuff. And that's what the Corinthians had begun to do. They had begun to move on to other things, to brilliant wisdom, to brilliant rhetoric, which we can't relate to as much, but we do the same thing. We begin to miss the centrality of the cross to speak into all we are and all we should be as Christians. 
And that's a, that's a sin you and I, we have to constantly be on guard against. The sin of losing the cross or assuming the cross or forgetting the cross in light of the cultural fads of our day. And that's one reason why I would advocate or argue that, that we as Christians, we need to continually, continually be reading and influenced and listening to, to Martin Luther King Jr. And I, I don't just say that on, on Martin Luther King weekend. I say that as, as he really spoke to something we as Christians missed. And one of his best places where he did it was in his letter from Birmingham jail. And in that letter, he wasn't writing to religious opponents or to atheists. He was writing to, to Christians, people he referred to as brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians who did not stand with him in his efforts to end segregation and seek racial justice and equality. And so when he sat down to write to these Christians in his letter from Birmingham jail, he didn't sit down and write and say, you guys need to go read your psychology textbooks and you just have bad, you know, you, you just need to, to think through human wisdom. He, he actually just calls them back to the cross, to the gospel, to the Bible, to Jesus. That the problem of Christians in the day, in 50, 60 years ago or 150 years ago, it's never that we don't have enough human wisdom. And so we assume the cross, we forget the cross, we move past the gospel and so he sat down from letter, in his letter to Birmingham Jail and he, he said this, which I think is, is important for us to hear this morning. He said, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard many ministers say, these are social issues with which the gospel has no concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. But what I love about that warning is, is those Christians were missing the gospel. Right? The cross, the gospel, it speaks to all of our life. Not just to a private salvation that will one day beam us up to heaven. It speaks to all of our life. To justice, to kindness. Right? It speaks to all of our life. And Martin Luther King's argument is almost exactly what Paul, the Apostle Paul's argument here. Which is, to, Paul is saying to this to the Corinthians. Martin Luther King was saying this to Christians the other day. You, you guys, you have the Spirit. You know the gospel. Why are you consumed with worldly ways of thinking? Ways that are going to die out. You have the spirit. You should know better. You have the gospel, the cross. You should know better. That's what Paul is saying in this, in this day to the, the Corinthians. But if you're like me, it raises a question. Both when I look at Christians' failures in the past, my own failures in my own life, is why does, it, why does God make it so hard to be known? Now that we know God... Or we need God to know God, and God wants to be known, and yet it could be really hard just to know and have an experiential knowledge of God, at least for me, some days. Right? For some people, maybe that's why you don't believe in Christianity. You want more, of an, more proof that God's there, that he's speaking, that he's present. Or if you're a Christian, maybe there are seasons when you just sense God's distance, that he's far, that you can't get to him. And so the question, I think, for me, for us to ask this morning, why, why does, is God so hard to be known? When we have the Holy Spirit, why is it so difficult to know him. And there's lots of ways to answer that question. I'll answer it in a couple. But, but the first is, is the way C.S. Lewis talked about in Mere Christianity. And he said this. He says, when you come to knowing God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him. And in fact, he shows so much more of himself to some people than to others. Not because he has favorites, because it's impossible for him to show himself to a man whose whole mind and character are in the wrong condition. Just as sunlight, though it has no favorites, cannot be reflected in a dusty mirror as clearly as in a clean one. And so let me ask this morning, are you in the right condition to let his light in? 
You see, the Bible makes it clear that every human being is running from God, right? rebelling against God. That it's not just God is speaking to passive observers. It's not just God's trying to make himself known to people who, who are trying to listen. It's, it's people who are running from him. And so I know we hear that and we think, but, but Tim, am I really running from God? I mean, I want to know. I, I, would, be, I would listen if he would speak and he just hasn't spoken. And, and I would just say, what if, what if we are? What if you are running? What if you don't want him to show himself? Because if he did, it, meant, it would mean everything about your life would have to change. I don't know why God seems so distant to me at times or distant in my life at times, but I, I do know this. If, if the Bible's right, there are times when God is silent because I want him to be. I don't want him to interfere with my life. I want to keep on the path that I'm on. And for God to speak into my life is going to contradict everything I'm walking towards. That's Lewis's point. And that's why I think times we, we don't know or have an experienced knowledge of God because we're walking the other direction. We, don't, we can't get his light because our, our mirror is, is dusty. And so that's a question for us to ask, right? Do you really want the confronting knowledge of God that will make everything about your life look different? We all, we need God to know God because we're running from him and he's trying to break in and is breaking in to make himself known. And so the, the last, last place, the last question to go then this morning is, is how can you know God? Like what, what does that mean? What does that look like? And I would say two things to that. First, with confidence in the cross alone. That's the only way you can know God. And I, I spoke to that last week. In, in verse 15, I feel like we have to bring out for at least a second. Because I don't know if, if you read that and are a little disturbed. I am. Um, but verse 15, it says, The spiritual person judges all things, but himself is to be judged by no one. Right? This sounds like a really bad verse for an arrogant person. Right? I can do whatever I want, and you can't judge me, because the Spirit is, I have the Spirit, and, and I can judge you, but you can't judge me, right? That's what, I read that, that's what I think it's saying, and it's not what it's saying. In fact, I would actually argue Paul is saying the exact opposite of that here. The, his point is something like this, that, that if you believe in the cross, you really do have a wisdom that's not accessible to, to people who don't have the cross, to people who aren't Christians, and that's where all your confidence should come from. And so when com someone comes along and thinks the cross or Christianity itself is a joke to be explained away, what do they know? Their wisdom is dying. Their fad will soon be a joke. They'll be an embarrassment to their grandkids. Don't listen to them. Listen to the cross. It's a wisdom that will never die out. It will never grow out because it's the wisdom of God revealed to us. That's Paul's point but it should not lead us to arrogance, right? It shouldn't lead us to, to dismiss others or to be arrogant towards others. Where it should mean, then, secondly, is to, to, to know God is to live in total dependence on the Spirit. Now, that's where Paul goes in, in verse 16, right? The question that he asks, which is hypothetical, for who's understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? No one, right? Just in case we're not sure. No one is able to instruct, instruct God. But then look what Paul says next. But we have the mind of Christ, I mean, that's an astonishing statement. Like, we, none of us can instruct God, and yet we have the mind of Christ. And what that means, or to me at least what that means, you and I, if you're a Christian, you've been given the Holy Spirit. Which means you're not better, you're not superior, or you can't look down on others because it's been a gift. It's something you've received. You've received the mind of Christ. That your confidence rests in a gospel that declares your weakness, your inabilities. That you are totally dependent on the Spirit to know God, to have the mind of Christ, and yet you have the mind of Christ, right? There's confidence there in the cross, and yet also total dependence on the Spirit, both pieces which should protect us 
from arrogance. And yet there's, I want to press in further to that and, and, and really conclude with the, the, the thought, the idea that, that even if all that's true, even if you have confidence in the cross, even if, if you're living in dependence on the Spirit, there's going to be still moments when God seems distant or God seems far. And to encourage you this morning, keep pursuing God even in the midst of that dryness. Because knowing God, it's knowing another person. Right? And if knowing God's totally dependent on His Spirit, it will mean you, you, you can't follow a formula to, to know God. Right? You can't just go to church a certain amount of time, read certain scriptures, pray a certain amount of times in a day. None of that will work to knowing God. We're all dependent on His Spirit and Him to know God. And so I think that, that could mean, or it probably does mean, there will be seasons maybe when God withdraws his presence from you for a reason. That, that maybe you'll go through a time of suffering or God will just seem distant. And, and in those moments, right, that, that just reveals to us there is a wide gap between us and God. Between us knowing God and knowing ourselves, right? We can't know God because he's, he's completely different than us unless he reveals himself to us. And so in those seasons, when God seems distant, you want to know him and yet you seem you can't. Keep pursuing him. Now we know from this text he wants to be known. And he will make himself known to you if you pursue him. All right, so keep pursuing. Keep worshiping. Keep praying. Keep immersing yourself in his scriptures. Not because it's a five-step process that will make everything right and you'll know God well. But because in those places you'll live in total dependence on the spirit. And that's the only way you'll know God is totally dependent on his spirit, with confidence in his cross. Because the cross shows us how far he'll go to know us. That he'll spare no expense, right? not even his son. He'll spare no cost, not even a cross. That you and I, we can't know God without God. But this God, through Jesus, wants to know you. Let's pray. God, I pray even now for those who seem distant or those who aren't Christians, you would make yourself known that we are in this place totally dependent on your spirit, totally dependent on you to make yourself known to us. God, we can never reason or, or get, get enough wisdom to come up to you. So Father, I pray humbly you would make yourself known now through worship, God, through our singing, you would re you reveal yourself to us, the goodness of your cross, the beauty of Jesus through your spirit. Make yourself known to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.